Are you a 3PL spending more time and money than you'd like recruiting and onboarding logistics roles? Then it's time to check out Rapido Solutions Group, the leaders in nearshore logistics staffing. Located right next door in Mexico, they have access to the freight talent you need. From carrier sales to tracking and tracing and everything in between, they can do the heavy lifting for you. So if you're ready to get your time back and want to move fast, check out Rapido Solutions Group. Visit GoRapido.com to get started today. Hello and welcome to the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics, the FreightWaves podcast highlighting founders doing it the way that doesn't get a lot of attention. We're here to change that and grow the small business community in our industry by sharing their stories and inspiring others to take the leap. I'm your host, Nate Schutz. Let's build something together from the ground up. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. We have a really fun one today. We're going completely unscripted. We have a guest that is sitting right now in Puerto Rico with no power due to the power outages that are happening down there and is running on a generator and still made time for the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics. So please welcome to the show uh, my friend Brad Hollister. Brad, good morning. Morning, Nate. Thanks for having me. Thanks for finally uh, making the time to do this. We have tried easily a half a dozen times and you're busy, I'm busy, we've got families and obligations and Today is the day, so let's just jump right in. What did you do with Swan Leap, and what was Swan Leap? We started out. I mean, it, it's funny. A lot of people are like, "Hey, how'd you come up with the idea?" And it, and it really wasn't an idea. It was a series of improvements on existing infrastructure in the supply chain industry. So, literally taking light artificial intelligence, so like automated and dynamic decision making, and applying that to parcel LTL truckload shipping. Now. Executing is not the only problem that most shippers face. Actually seeing the impact of the decision that you make in analytics is also vital. And then also having the audit right there alongside is what we thought vital. So literally, I I just discussed three different things. Execution of TMS for inbound and outbound shipments, looking at analytics live in real time, which isn't really uh, a thing in supply chain. And then having the auditing of the freight bills and parcel bills right alongside to make sure that the decisions you think you're making, you're actually receiving. Once you have those three pillars, then it's clear to say, we need help in designing our carrier network. And so that would be the fourth. So four pillars, helping to understand like which carriers to use. And, and I think it's clear today in 2022, but even back in 2014, to us, it was clear that you don't beat up carriers to save money. You find the right carriers that your supply chain needs match their carrier network. So we see companies all the time, like FedEx Freight handles, you know, their 80% of their business. Well, I would probably guess that, you know, FedEx Freight has advantages in some supply chains. And then also it's probably not the right carrier in others. If you're shipping intrastate, for example, which we saw all the time, you know, FedEx Freight is probably not the right solution. So data will start to make decisions clear. And that's what we did at Swan Leap. And it was very revolutionary compared to static routing guides and things which still govern the industry in 2020. That's what we did different. Really briefly then, pre-2014, you're working in a variety of, you know, freight and logistics companies, you know, accumulating some industry chops. You make the decision, hey, I'm going to go into the technology arena instead. 
you see an opportunity, you build some of the underlying tech, you get some you know, use cases going out in the real world, and you get traction somehow. How did you go out and pitch a product that wasn't fully built? I mean, you have to find, I think you got to be lucky no matter what. Either you have to fund something that you don't know is going to happen, or you need to find someone to help you build it in a, a use case. We were fortunate enough to have a really, a really good guy named Jim Rogan at Rogan Shoes. They have 40 shoe stores within mostly Wisconsin, Northern Illinois, Iowa, and Minnesota. He needed a way to dynamically decide how to ship something out of his store. He was doing omni-channel fulfillment before it was even a thing. They were actually, they got in trouble from UPS because they were actually making decisions on what store to fulfill orders from. And then they were faxing the label to the store of a fax machine. And then the labels were all wacky and out of whack and UPS got all mad at them and stuff. They got like threatened and all this. They had a problem that they couldn't find a solution for. And really what they needed was dynamic decision-making. They knew this is the order of shoes, okay? The destination and what it is. The piece of the puzzle they needed to fill was the origin. Which store is it going to come from? Now, because they're all pretty geographically located, it was extra easy project because we didn't have to take into account transit time. If you had a nationwide footprint, you'd have to factor in transit time. So everything was two days. So, you know, whether you're shipping from Minnesota, Wisconsin, Minnesota to Northern Illinois or Iowa, it's all, everything's in two day footprint anyway. So what we did was we, we would hit their inventory table with the SKU and find out which store had the most stock. Now we've just answered, you know, the, the, the riddle, right? Now we have the origin, destination and what it is. So then we didn't know any better. Uh, we didn't know that static routing guides and, you know, label making was a thing. Like we didn't know people entered in rules. We just, did what was logical at the time in 2013, actually. And then we took all those pieces of the puzzle and we hit UPS, FedEx, Indicia, which is post office, actually hit like speedy delivery and other regionals, and then just wrote back into their system the best way to ship it. So if it was a three-day transit for some reason, then we hit it, right? Because they have a two-day promise. So we didn't need to write a rule to say, if it's two-day, do this. We just like hit it. It, was not, it wasn't going to arrive on time. So that first customer then obviously saw value in that how did you roll that out? Was it you know location by location or did everybody go live at once? And how did you convince an, a, whole, a whole organization to take a gamble on you? Well, Jim Rogan himself, was he's one of the brothers that owns it. He was having this problem. So we executed this and then we submitted an invoice. Now today, that's about, a, I'm guessing, a $100,000 project maybe. And uh, we submitted an invoice. We're like, uh, 13000 and he's like, uh, how about six? We're like, done, take it. And we took 6,000 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so like, we had no idea how to price it. I mean, none of us worked at a competitor. I mean, it was like 6,000 bucks and he got this amazing system and saved him like 45% on his freight. He's made millions on that. So then you roll that success into we did, the we next demoed customer? It, we demoed it for another e-commerce company. They bought it. And we were a little higher on the price then. And and then we demoed it for another company that had LTL. And like LTL was my wheelhouse, worked at Zaya, uh, worked at a freight brokerage. It was just a logical conversation about addressing needs of clients they couldn't find in the market. So then you follow the rapid growth trajectory. You're signing up new logos consistently. You're building your team. Are you hiring developers at this point? I was a college wrestler. So... It, you know, there's almost like no end, at least at the time I thought there was no end to the amount of work I could put in. So literally as the company kept growing, we just put all the money to development, all of it and operations support, which was minimal. 
So like the more that we grew, the more I would just take on sales. And I realized through that process, I'm not a good salesperson, but I'm super passionate. So people just buy the passion. And so it was a tough thing to scale. Like people just believed in me, right? And it wasn't because I was like strategically designing a sales process. It was just like, no, listen, this is why you need this. Like, and so it was, I had success selling for sure. I sold most deals until like 2020. I sold almost everything. Do you think a lot of earlier founders then spend too much time trying to design the sales process and overthinking it? We might get into this later in the podcast, but I, I think as a, as a founder, what I'm learning in like the equity markets, like private equity or VC, we talk about those too. The only thing that matters in a tech company specifically is growth. That's it. Nothing else. Revenue doesn't matter. Profit doesn't matter. You have to show growth. You have to show year over year growth. If your business isn't growing 100% per year, you're going to be lost by the VCs because they're looking at so many deals that are growing at 100% a year. 100% is like literally the minimum cost of entry to be a serious company. If you're growing at 20, 30% a year, you're not going to make it. Well, that's counterintuitive in one sense because you're in that example, you're building for an exit, it sounds like, but you didn't start that way. You started with your own money and risking it all yourself. I didn't plan on an exit at all. In fact, I could never imagine exiting ever. You know, I still believe that this was like a billion dollar company because of what we built. It took a series of events to really look at myself in the mirror and say, is this really going to surpass and beat the market? And there were so many hot companies in our market back in 2020, late 2019, 2020, that were growing so much faster than us that I was starting to kind of be honest with myself, which is a tough thing for an entrepreneur, you know, to call your baby ugly. But I started looking at it going like, hey, look, in January 2020, we had seven, no, excuse me, January 2021, we had seven inbound strategic inquiries in January. I thought it was just people dusting off their Rolodex going, hey, would you ever sell? But these were people I knew coming to me and going, hey, listen, we really want what you guys have built. Can you show us? I still was like, no, pay me gazillions and gazillions of dollars and then I'll maybe think about it. That's not serious, you know? And Jason Swanson, co-founder, basically was like, dude, look, here's the baggage we have in our company. COVID didn't do us well. We were self-funded. We didn't have bootstrap or we were bootstrap money. We didn't have, you know, huge PEC money. I started through this process learning what other companies are paying salespeople. I was like, man, we can't even come close to competing with that. And then even our developers, you know, we had developers leaving for five or 10 grand more all the time. And like, I mean, it was a constant battle, right? Like we got more revenue. We kind of couldn't hire anymore because we had to shore up salaries along the way. So it was like a stalemate, a bunch of stuff like that going on that like key people needed to be paid more. And so like we literally were like stuck in the mud in terms of, you know, profitability or growth because we couldn't put new resources to use. We had to shore up existing. So I started really looking at that stuff when he brought up like, hey, what about this element of our company? And and then, you know, my management style is to come over and be like, hey, Nate, I saw that blue button you made, man. That was, that's awesome. I love it. You know, good job, man. That's my style. And not necessarily, you know, trying to reinforce and, you know, that culture and, and reward that hard work ethic. Not necessarily like, hey, let's have meetings about how we can save the planet while we're trying to build a tech company. Like, that's ridiculous, man. And that happens all the dang time. You're not a 30 mile an hour guy, are you? No, and a lot of people don't like that, right? I mean, it's not comfortable. And like, I didn't realize that. Like, for example, when someone resigned from us, I wasn't going to take them to lunch and do a bunch of crap and thank them for their time and stuff. Like, I don't have time for that. 
I thought I thanked them for their time every two weeks when I got a check, you know? And employees that suddenly got stock, you could read on LinkedIn, like I'm a heartless guy and all this stuff. I, that's not it. I'm just behind on everything and I don't have time to mess around and dance around a bunch of feelings. So to me, when someone decides to leave, like I don't care if they come in or not, like I don't really want to talk to you. I don't have time for you. Like you decide to quit on this. I have to now take up your job and, and actually fill the hole that you just left me, you know? So it's a really tough for me to, you know, try to like do all these meetings about Earth Day and all this stuff. Like we can have a meeting about what we need in the budget and like let's execute it. We can have to do this in one meeting, but like we can have meetings about scheduling meetings and stuff. And like once we get to that size of company, I get really frustrated because it's like not you're not producing. You know, like what do you what did you produce today? You know, that's the question. How do you wake up every day and make yourself better than where you were yesterday? That's lost on most of our population. It's tough. So with that being said, the two most important questions that I like to ask in an, an interview and during a hiring process is two things. What do you do on Saturday morning between the hours of eight and noon? It's an important question because it's going to tell you just the makeup and the energy that a person has, right? Trust me, I get in sometimes on a trip Friday night and like I got to sleep until 8.30 or 9 because like I got to like fix my body so I can have energy to you know, do some family downtime, you know? That's important too. Most people aren't on that pace. So like, what do you do between those hours? Like if you're going out and doing something like to better yourself, like you're either like helping out like some kind of charity element or you're like learning a language or like learning like how to eat healthier, or you're doing some exercise, you're practicing for a competition. Those are attractive qualities to me. I like to sit on my deck and drink coffee. Like you're not waking up with that like quest to change the world and improve yourself. Like I just don't have time for those people. That was one. And then like, what's your greatest accomplishment in life? I try to like be a little softer on my stance with that because sometimes like I had an assistant that used to do these like charity things for kids, like and work in the hospital. That's awesome, man. I, I have so much respect for that. But like I was gonna hire a guy from this huge trucking company, I won't mention their name in Wisconsin, Packer fans. This guy was like the perfect candidate on paper. Perfect. I needed him. He had like 15 years operational experience, just an awesome guy. And I asked him like if he didn't have to work, what would he do? Right? Or what his biggest passion is. And he told me it was surfing. I'm like, surfing? Like, how often do you surf? He's like, oh, like once a year. I'm like, wait a minute. The thing that you like are like, if you didn't have to work, what you would do is surfing and you're not surfing every day. You're living in Wisconsin. Like, what the hell's wrong with you, man? Like, go do your dream. That's not really your dream. It's like kind of like a kind of a throwaway, you know, like the guy that I end up hiring, he's still with the company. He had like six month jobs for like six years, every six months, new job. I didn't want to interview this guy. He came in the interview. Everyone's like, you should really like talk to him. Like, dude, come on. Like he's six months. He can't keep a job. He's bouncing all over the place. Like, I don't want to deal with this. You know, I sat with him and he was really respectful and like, you know, really well polished and things, you know, I really liked that, you know, but I asked him what his greatest accomplishment was. And he said he won a hundred matches in high school wrestling. That's a big deal, man. So that told me a ton of things, right? Like he held himself accountable for four years, right? He, he woke up every day with a quest for improving himself. And then he went through a lot of mental you know, hurdles. You know, he accomplished something great. Now, sports is the easy thing to point to, but I try not to like only zero in on that. But this to me spoke to me. I knew what that took to accomplish. But whether he was a swimmer or a gymnast or you know, marathon or anything, like that kind of person is going to wake up. And then also like they bring that to the workplace. Because now like if I go over and go, hey, Nate, I really think you could have done this differently. And it's important to me that as, as, the, as the person to deliver it in a, in a constructive manner. But if I come over to you and be like, hey, listen, I, I really think we could do this differently. And like, what do you think about this? 
And you're going to look at that as a way to improve yourself and be thankful because you just got better from that feedback. But a person that doesn't have that quest or isn't going to push themselves into an area of discomfort or beyond their comfort zone, they're going to look at that like, oh, Brad doesn't like the job I'm doing or Brad's a jerk or whatever. And they're not going to look at that feedback as the same way. Like I love to learn the things I screw up on, right? Because I want to get better in no matter what I do. So that's what I like in the people. And so that was a huge tangent. I'm sorry for that. But like it really got to the point of like the speed I operate at. Like that person is going to be like, crap, we got to get this thing done, honey. I'm not going to be home for dinner. We got to do this thing. And like as an employer, you can't like constantly whip people and like expect that every week. But when you need it, it needs to be there and you need to have that dedication from the team. And it's, it's tough for people that don't push themselves outside of their current comfort zone to be able to you know, see the why they need to do that that day. So, One of the reasons I always enjoy talking with you is you know who you are. You know you're not for everybody. You're high intensity, high expectations. It can come across sometimes as low empathy, which I know isn't true. However, it's really easy on the side of success that you are on to forget about the failures. And when you were at your lows and maybe others, you know, kind of came alongside you or, you know, offered you something. So I'm going to push you into your area of not being comfortable. And I want to know what scares you. I want to know what your failures looked like. And when you were the guy who wasn't, you know, making the blue button good. Customers were honest with us. And I I wish more, the thing I ask anybody that's going to buy in an enterprise solution is be really candid with the person that's pitching you because a lot of work goes into that, right? And like so often, that was the thing that I, I didn't like. I spent so much time with the prospect and I didn't buy from them or they didn't buy from me, excuse me. And then they didn't really give me the honest feedback. That's not fair, right? So I feel like in most cases, maybe I wasn't good about asking for that feedback or creating an environment that allowed the customer to feel honest with the vendor with that to give me that feedback. The customers that we did have gave me great feedback on things. And a lot of it was usually around like features that we need to develop and stuff, which is on one hand really good because they were really invested emotionally in, in our solution. But they didn't really always... I couldn't be so candid with all the things behind the scenes that was like taking away from our ability to make new things. You know, there's spaghetti code on the back end or like we're having maybe APIs fail. Like that happens at every tech company. So you can't always do the things that look clear. The one thing that I also learned through this process is it's a really tough balancing act between communicating company events with employees and then opening it up for democracy. That is so hard in this day and age. And it's a really, it's something that I, I think I at least was cognizant of, but I definitely think I had like miles to go like, Hey, listen, we're in cash problem. We have a problem. But then like we had a guy go, Oh my God. Like I asked, he, he was a VP for us when COVID hit. It was like crazy to us. We didn't have a ton of money in the bank. I asked every department manager, create a 10, 25 and 50% cut plan for me, expense cut. Like, what is it going to look like? I don't know what we're going to do, but I need to know what our options are and what it looks like. That guy resigned. He resigned and took a job because he's like, these companies going out of business. I'm like, no, man, I was trying to communicate to my leadership what I'm seeing, you know? So I think so often it was more learning that I didn't have the right people on the bus to like be ready to run through those brick walls. What scared me though was I knew that we weren't paying everyone. I did the best I could, you know, bootstrapping the company. I knew that we had people that demonstrated more value than what they were getting. And that's why we did the stock program. 
But a lot of people never saw the value in the stock. So I was always worried that we're going to lose people. And I took it personally for like a day when someone resigned. Like they quit on my vision to pursue a better vision. That's the way I look at it. They may not have seen it that way, but that's how I look. That's why I was like, you're dead to me, man. Like, thank you. But I mean, we probably lost 200 employees over eight years, but I only talked to maybe a handful. And those are the ones that exited more gracefully. Here's why. And, or maybe were more candid with me up front that they were looking. That was a big deal to me because I feel like they weren't necessarily quitting. They saw their value being greater than what I could provide them. This is a uniquely successful founder challenge. The loyalty to the mission or the loyalty to the company can sometimes feel like it gets entangled with loyalty to the founder. So you saying that you take it personally is... I understand it in one sense because this is your baby. This is your vision. And you put your blood, sweat, and tears into it. And you use the word, you know, people resigning gracefully. Did that extend in the other direction though? And do you maybe feel like you have room to grow as an individual? Forget as a, a founder, but just as an individual on appreciating that other people see the world differently or experience it differently. We'll be right back. Have you heard about Bitfreighter and the EDI revolution? Bitfreighter helps companies automate communication with their freight partners through unlimited messaging and quoting. Traditional providers can't say that. The Bitfreighter team is also available 24-7 and responds immediately by phone, email, or yes, even text. Legacy providers can't say that either. So if you want to scale your operations to save time and money, come join the EDI revolution with us. Visit bitfreighter.com to get started today. It depends how they exited, right? Like, it's really tough. It's just tough in this day and age. I understand. Like, someone wants to make more money, but I, I did appreciate people that came to us and were like, I wasn't looking, but I got approached by this headhunter, and this is the range they're talking about, and like, I, I really don't want to leave, but you know, this money's out there for me. Like, I could try to work with that, you know? It takes experience to be able to manage those things and communicate with employees, for sure. Well, in the, the labor market and the labor force dynamics are changing also. We have, you know, four to five generations, depending on how you look at it, in the workforce at any given time, each with, you know, kind of broad or, you know, very general tropes that we assign to baby boomers or to Gen Z or, you know, et cetera. It can make it complicated because it, it is still people and it's their livelihoods and their families. Let's go there for just a second then too, because I know you've got a family and you're a super intense dude. How is it like being in your family with what you have going on? My kids are in 2022, 16, 11, and about to turn six. It's boy, boy, girl. My 16-year-old told me recently that he appreciates how hard I was on my children in terms of accountability. I think that's the single most lost attribute that's lacking in society is accountability. I don't understand how people can come to work. And like your work may allow you to come in shorts, but don't come in shorts, man. It's your personal brand. Are they going to look at you as a future VP, a future C-level coming in shorts and Crocs? Like you can, but do you want to? And if you do, I have a problem with that. Like I feel bad for you. Now I wouldn't say it to employees. I just know that's where that guy is. Our first employee never made it beyond account manager. Never. He could have. He was smart enough. He just it wasn't because of how he dressed, just because of how he acted and and he never like demonstrated this like commitment to improve himself. Getting back to my children, 
when we remodeled the office, we didn't really have money for that. So we knew we had a customer coming to visit. And so we had to get this thing done. We built a pallet wall. We did all this stuff. Like we worked all weekend. My son was like eight, I think seven, maybe. He's working the nail gun. The nail gun's pretty safe. You know, you have to push the thing. So he's working the nail gun. The nail um, gun's pretty safe for a It's pretty re- re- relatively, like, re- like, relatively safe. Yeah. My other son was probably 12. He was working the miter saw. Pretty safe. Table saw is not safe. You know, we talk about those things, about that commitment to the goal. And like my kids are like, when they come to Puerto Rico, they're like, hey, can we, let's go do this thing. I'm like, yeah, I got to do this podcast. Like, so you guys can go without me or you can just kind of maybe, why don't you sweep up and do these things and then we can all go together. And then we have, we can stay longer because everything's done. My daughter, I laughed when you asked the question because we were just going through the airport and my daughter's a prima donna princess, right? At five, but I'm not having it. Everything's a test. And parents that give into that crap, they're teaching the wrong lesson. It's, it's late. In Salt Lake, it was 10 o'clock. So 11 o'clock Midwest time. She doesn't want to carry her like six pound backpack. Okay. And my wife started carrying. I'm like, no, Lisa, Lisa, make her carry that backpack. I'm tired. She's tired. We just got to learn like it's an option. So I told my daughter, I'm like, listen, if you want, you can sleep here in the corner of the airport and then we can come get you tomorrow. But we have to go from here to the car. You understand that? Like, there's no magic here. You have to get to the car somehow, or you don't, and we can come get you tomorrow. So if you want, you can sleep over there by the post and take your backpack with you so you can put your head on it. Let me know what you want to do. I'll give you a few minutes, but I'm not carrying your backpack because we have all these other backpacks we have to carry. I had a guy come over to me and I'm like looking at my daughter in the eyes like this. I'm annoyed. She knows I'm, she knew I was annoyed. I had a guy come over to me and tell me to take it easy on her. I'm like, no. Like this, I'm not taking it easy on her. She's got to understand that this is not an option to like say the bag's too heavy or my shoulder hurts or like I can't walk. Like, and so many people go through life like I was uncomfortable. I'm carrying like three bags, you know, like she's uncomfortable, but like we have to go through that discomfort in life. Like, what's the other option? And so many people go through life like just taking that easy way. We could have carried her bag. It would have been nothing. But like, what kind of lesson am I teaching this young person that's about to go through life? You know, little micro examples like this, I make a point for my kids to experience. Other kids, like, don't go through that. You know, like when my kids come in, like they clean their stuff. Like we get on a ski trip, they clean their skis because like they understand like they're fortunate enough to have skis, you know, like, and they got it. There's a responsibility that comes with that. My kids have to study on airplanes and stuff because there's a responsibility to getting out of school. But then you get the reward of being in Puerto Rico. And so I'm really hard on my kids in a respectful way, but communicating why, why they have to do this hard thing because of the payment that comes with it. I've seen the difference among other kids. Like for example, an easy thing, easy kid every parent can deal with and really dig in on is when your kid doesn't want to eat. Don't give them a freaking snack two hours later pull out their cold food and put it back in front of them. Like that's what they got to eat. If you do that early at two, three, four years old, you don't have that problem when they're seven, eight, nine. Don't let your kids be picky with food. Don't. I don't agree with you on probably 80% of what you say, but I absolutely love your conviction. That's why I always enjoy chatting with you is you know who you are, you know what you believe, and you're going to stick to it come hell or high water. So shifting gears, What do you have a ton of conviction about right now? What are you working on? I've had a lot of fun working with other entrepreneurs and listening to their business ideas and looking at making some micro investments. 
And my biggest conviction right now in the business realm, in the scope of like an entrepreneur is understanding that, first of all, it's so nice to look back at my company and see with a more clear picture, all the things I did wrong. The biggest thing I did wrong was I didn't put the right people around me. I could do all this on my own, but like I didn't grow as fast or as big as I could have as a leader, as an entrepreneur, as I've seen other people grow in our industry. We didn't take money. We didn't take serious institutional money. So, But what I see the value of taking money is not the money, but it's like now you've just leveraged other people's network. So we can work as hard as we can and go to and, and build a network. And my network's amazing, right? But my network is it just a absolute drop in the bucket compared to the network of my networks. Oh my God. Like I know so many CEOs and stuff in my network. Their networks are unbelievable. You know what I mean? And and their their networks might be might be stronger than mine, might be weaker than mine. Now I get their network too. If I network with their network. I look at some of the leaders in 2022, you know, Flexport, Project 44, Forkites. What they've done is they've brought their networks are now Goldman Sachs' network. You imagine that's who's involved in those companies. SoftBank's network. Oh my God. It's not like some local PE firm in Chicago. Like that's a big network too, right? But nothing like what these guys have been able to do. So the biggest thing that I wished, my biggest regret was finally two regrets. One, I didn't keep a journal. I wish I would. Because at the end of the journey, I wish I could read the story again and laugh and cry about certain chapters, you know, like let that happen, right? Because there's certainly... There's hey, no room for crying, Brad. What are you talking about? No, man. There was things to cry about in, in hindsight, you know, like some are tears of joys and some are tears of sadness. But like I look back at like now like what Flexport's doing and stuff, right? Whether you agree or don't agree with, their, with what they're doing, I mean, you can't argue with the power that they have. And it's not because they took gazillion dollars is because they have people that gave gazillion dollars now involved in their company. It's an interesting example because Flexport has the Beyond Deck program as well that now is is trying to create some of that same flywheel of, you know, connect the financing with talent, with other founders, and then, you know, even getting into additional roles that people play within the startup community and trying to curate people around that. It'll be fascinating to see what they're able to build. It's possible 20 years from now, we talk about groups like that as not the minor leagues, but all the major league players 20 years from now, a lot of them are going to have come through a new type of accelerator. Everyone's really at least understanding the, the importance of investing in tomorrow. And there's so many models out there that are trying to disrupt UPS's model and UPS is investing in all, a lot of them. So that's, that's really a cool story being written there. My advice to like some of these entrepreneurs, like when we start talking about my involvement is like a lot of these people, they don't understand that. And I don't think I understood at the time the importance of building a strong network and getting people involved. And so they want loans because they don't want to dilute their ownership. And it's like, man, I really wish you could see like how good Swan Leap was and like how we were a really, really good technology, a small technology company. And we never got, you know, we never grew to that billion dollar range. Why? Because we didn't put the right leadership in place, we didn't spend the right money in the right places, and we didn't have the right advisors. Our board meetings were like, everyone arrived kind of late, stumbled in, we're looking at the financials during the meeting for the first time. Like There was no prep, there was no organization, there was no agenda. And like we had the wrong board, we had the wrong advisors. Great people. I mean, I, they're friends, of course, you know, but they weren't telling me I was doing things wrong. They weren't guiding. I wasn't asking for help. It was just reporting what happened. 
Are you an easy guy to give feedback to? Yeah, I'm really, I mean, it gets back to that wrestler mentality, right? Like if I tried like three moves in a match and, and I was only successful in two of them, I would go home and work on that one I failed on like a bunch of times. So I'm really quick to admit when I'm wrong. And it's it's almost to a little bit of a fault, right? Because like sometimes people are like, God, you really screw up a lot. Like, well, yeah, I don't care about the wins. You know, I only care about the losses. Quick story on that. I was um, coaching youth once and I was with two other dads that I wrestled with in college. Okay. One dad was a national champion in college and the other dad was an All-American. And we knew each other since like little kids. And we were like, hey, do you remember that guy from you know this city? And I'm like, yeah, he beat me once. And then we were talking a few minutes later. And I'm like, hey, do you remember in that other guy in this other city? I'm like, yeah, he was a stud. Like, yeah, I lost to him. You know, what, I, almost, I almost beat him. And then like a few minutes later, another one. It's like the, the rule of threes, right? Like, oh, yeah, he beat me too. And then the national champion dad is a friend of mine. He goes, God, did you ever win? Right? And I go, man, I hardly ever lost. Right? And I'm like, I only lost like a handful of matches. But I don't remember any wins at all. Zero. I only remember the losses. So that's not a trait that I have to really try to suppress that in a team environment. Cause like I'm gonna really rail hard on the failures. But like you gotta like rah-rah people up today. And it's you can't really just dive right in the, the over the meeting all the things you screwed up. Like you gotta be like, oh, here's all the great things. Here's the things that could be used improvement. And then you gotta like deliver that with a, like a you know box of chocolates and flowers too and be like, ah, oh, don't hate me for being honest, you know, like you know, that it's important to take that feedback and then say like, thanks, now I'm going to use this to be better. As you look at other founders then, and, you know, maybe what they're working on, especially if you're making investments in them now, what do you see as being the biggest challengers for logistics founders right now? Being coachable. The logistics is a very strange industry in terms of, we can go out and say, this is how it should work. And this is the technology I'm going to make to make it work that way. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so many founders are running to market with these new technologies that like, wouldn't it be great if it's like, man, go ask a major shipper first, right? Go find out how Oracle works before you try to like say it should work this way. I didn't do that. So I had a really uphill battle in my sales process because I didn't understand the perspective of the person I was pitching to. You know, you and I have talked about spot market. I think every shipper should go completely spot market. Today in 2022, that's still a radical notion. I'm an outlier. We are, as an industry, on the far other side of the spectrum of that. I can't try to like ram down the throat of major, major automotive companies that should go completely spot market when they don't understand how they would pull it off. And they're not really interested because they've been doing this this way for 100 years. It's a really tough thing. And then they're going to gamble on that. You imagine like, no, they're not going to. It's important that you at least understand, you know, what it is that you're pitching and then you're coachable to say, hey, listen, I'm wrong. I'm wrong on this. It took me a while for that. I didn't really get that positive feedback. Where can feedback. founders or where do founders go to find that coaching? There's really two sides to the business that I've learned. You have one, your product, and then the, the target market you're pitching to. It has to be solid there. So when someone tells you your idea is dumb, like there's the rule like, if there's one jerk out there, then that's just a jerk. But if there's two jerks, you're the jerk. That's what I, I've heard this like kind of expression. I was trying to clean it up for the audience, right? Because you already well, I appreciate it. Swear. Yeah, we got, but, a like, clean, we got a clean rating. Let's keep it that way, Brad. Point is, if you go to one prospect that you would like to have and they tell you your idea is bad, it's okay. Take that, like take what they're saying and balance it. If you go to two or three and you're getting the same feedback, then you have a problem in your business. Okay. That's really, really important. But ask your target to really tell me why this won't work. 
Tell me why you'd have trouble selling this internally. Be ready to know that you have a dumb idea or you didn't understand things that are going to really prevent your success down the road. That's one. And I did that at Swan Leap and I got really good feedback. Things that I thought should happen, like people have told me, no, like, no, that's not going to work. The other side is take candid advice from people that are going to help you build the company. The constant piece of advice that I got over and over and over again that I did not follow, and I'm guilty, I'm guilty of this, was I need to spend a lot of money on a CFO. I never did. I was like, I don't understand. This guy's not going to do anything. He's just going to tell us what we did. Like, I'm going to pay a guy like quarter million bucks a year for what? To just like count numbers? But we can have a controller and an accounting firm do that. I didn't understand the value there. So once we started getting down to negotiations during the sale, we weren't even speaking the same language as the buyer. Like we, we really, I was embarrassed at how bad our financial representation was. That wasn't just the only thing. We could have like structured our loans better with the bank. We could have done so many different things had we had an experienced person in that seat, but I didn't see the value of it. So I decided not to take that advice. So I heard that advice once, I didn't follow it. I heard it again, I didn't follow it. I heard it again, I didn't follow it. That's what I'm saying. Like, If you start to hear the same advice, whether it's on the customer product side and vision and, and actual solution or in building your team and you hear it over and over again, there's something there. And again, you're leveraging people with experience, talking to people with experience. I was talking to people that are talking to hundreds of potential entrepreneurial investments or hundreds of entrepreneurs giving me advice that they have seen over and over again. I decide not to follow it. So in hindsight, I would start to like look at people that have been there and done that as having a, taking a lot more faith in, in stock and the advice they're giving and the feedback they're giving me about my company. Well, if you're a founder and you're listening, first, thank you. Learn from Brad's mistakes. That is half of the the goal that we have on this podcast is one, grow community and also to support the founders themselves. It's a uniquely challenging place to sit in where you're accountable for the performance of the entire organization and you cannot be an expert in all things. You may know, you know, routing guide, digitization and carrier strategies better than anybody in the world. But if you don't understand accounting, you will set yourself back or you you won't unlock the full potential value of your organization. So I know Brad is working on a handful of other projects that we're not going to have the time to get into today. So we're going to have to have him back and share maybe what life looks like after you've successfully exited and then have the means to be able to take some moonshots and sprinkle some investments. You're on a different side of the table now. You're still a founder. You're still highly motivated to build and create. I also can see in you the the transition that you're going through, which is you're looking beyond a business and now you're looking at multiple businesses and multiple entrepreneurs. And I don't have any doubt that you're going to have, you're going to leave your dent. Well, thanks. I mean, I think as part of this too, like I've been able to reflect in some of the journeys that like I mentioned, Four Kites and Project 44 and, and Flexport, probably the most remarkable thing about all those companies is that those CEOs started out as knucklehead idiot entrepreneurs like me and like everybody. The most inspiring part of their story is all of those guys are billion dollar CEOs now. How in the hell did they do that? It's an easy answer. They were coachable. They were able to grind and then continue to grind. And then they were able to put people that were better than them around them. And then they became better than that group. And then they went through another raise and they put better people than that first group of advisors around them. 
and they've been able to grow as entrepreneurs. During my journey, I don't think I grew clearly as fast as they did. So now, about to be 44 years old, what am I? I know what I am. I'm a startup small business CEO. I am not a billion dollar CEO and I know that. It takes a different acumen. Now, I could go through this again and I think I could probably be coachable enough and understand the value of being coached to go through and learn those things and do that. I don't want to do that now. I feel like I have a playbook that gets us to the 40-yard line, right? Using a football analogy, it gets us like certain distance and then we need to bring in people with those skill sets. That is such a powerful illustration specifically for founders knowing their niche, not just in the industry, but in the stage of the life cycle of a company. Are you a zero to one guy? Are you a one to three? Are you a three to 10? There's very few out there that can be all of those things. And they're the Elon Musks of the world. I was in like a bunch of CEO groups and stuff. And like, I was always consistently the only founder in those groups. And like the CEOs annoyed me so much. They're so like calculated and like methodical and like they weren't founders. They were all like hired MBAs and stuff. I don't have that. And I didn't like being around those people because like they were too slow. The ideals move too slow. I understand there becomes a point in a time for that. And when Swan Leap got to that point, actually probably got to that point in 2019, that I probably wasn't the right guy. Let's commit a year from now. So we're, we're looking at April of 2023. Yes, I'm interested to know what you've gotten done. I want to hear about the two or three more losses that you've had because I know you'll remember those even more. And I want to hear what the new learnings are for you that after you've started journaling today, you have a year's worth of learning that you can share back with everybody. Yeah, you know, it starts with no one carried my backpack, man. For that 80% you don't agree with. <laughs> like, I've talked to so many entrepreneurs that their parents carried their backpack. And... um that's the thing for me is like being able to say like, look, am I willing to go through this tough thing? Am I willing to look at myself in the mirror and say, yeah, hey, I'm not as good as I thought I was here. The advice I gave somebody yesterday, I talked to an entrepreneur for like an hour on the phone and, I, and I'm happy to do that with people like, because I think it's fun. As long as people are willing to like say, hey, listen, I might not like what he has to say, but I want to listen to this. In the end, I'll be you know validated with my advice. It just might not feel like it at the time. This guy's an engineer trying to make a new technology. He's never sold to enterprise. And I go, man, listen, Build this on the side and go work at Oracle or NetSuite or Microsoft and try to sell enterprise stuff. It doesn't matter what the salary is because you're not going to be able to put a quantified value on the skills you're going to learn. Go do this. It's going to suck, but you're going to learn about yourself and you're going to be able to look at yourself in the mirror. I don't think he's going to do it, but I think that's the most sound advice he could get right now is to like look at yourself in the mirror, find those weaknesses, be honest. Probably the most inspiring book I've read in a long time, and I actually listened to it, was the David Goggins story, You Can't Hurt Me. Practically illiterate, out of shape, 300 pound guy that like went through all kinds of like racism and went through all this stuff and just let society beat him down mentally and tell him, he let society dictate that he was nothing and he's a piece of trash. And he decided one day to change it. And you know what he did? He went out and ran a half a mile and he quit. He said, you know what? Society's right. I am a piece of garbage. I can't read. He's doing pest control. And something flipped in him. And he went through and he got admitted to the Navy SEALs and he failed the first time. And he went again and he failed the second time. He got back a third time. He found out in the last final straws that he had two broken legs. 
he taped up his legs and finished it. From there, at that point, I'm like, man, this guy's nuts, right? I was actually running and my knee started hurting. I'm listening to this book. My knee, this is true. My knee started hurting. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, can I say the B word? I think so, right? Like that's what David Goggins says, like your inner, you know what? Your inner, you know, your, your inner voice, your inner weakness telling you to stop. And I'm like, I, I think that I'm just tired from running. I don't think it's really my knee. Well, actually the next day my knee hurt. I couldn't walk. It was swollen. So I'm like, okay. And I actually went out and ran again. I'm like, after about three miles, I'm like, I need to turn around. This is, this is not going good. But those are the things like his mental teaching you the mental training to be able to like, to say like, I know there's doubt in myself and I know that I'm weak here, but I have to keep going. Or like, this is just part of the journey. And like, when you hit those milestones of success and failure, like you have to acknowledge both of them because it's going to be hard, man. And uh, it's going to be tough. And putting yourself through you know, a process to understand your weaknesses and then, and then put things around you with advisors and employees and teammates to help you with those weaknesses starts to at least make you prepared that you're going to experience this or avoid it potentially if you put those right people in place and assign those responsibilities. And I think those three companies that I mentioned, and there's literally hundreds more, maybe more, They've done that successfully, clearly, right? I didn't do that. You know, we had problems with stuff all the time. Like we hired like four SEO firms and like every one of them was a complete failure. Like, so I think about those things. I didn't know how to hire the right SEO firm. I needed someone that knows how to do that. Well, cheers to the learnings and the successes and whatever comes next. Brad, thank you so much for spending the time today. I always love talking to you. (laughs) Me too, man. Thanks for listening to another founder share their story on the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics. If you'd like to become part of the story yourself, please subscribe to our show and leave a review. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.